hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who podcast. We're watching Doctor Who and the Time and the Rani, and uh, having extracted my fingers from uh, Joe, <laughs> I'm ready to press play on episode two. I'll have you know you've extracted your fingers and your tongue um, in episode <laughs> one. Yeah, you did a particularly stellar Tetrap impression. Um, yeah. I oh, mean, no, that, that's. Did you have you seen the size of those tetrap tongues? Like my god! Oh man! Didn't we get quite excited about Lynx's tongue in um, yeah, Time Warrior? Yeah, you did lots of Lynx tongue impressions. Yeah. Oh my! Stop it! That's really hot. Okay. <laughs> if only you could see what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> Maybe I'll make that the publicity picture. Um, I would just like to point out. Wow, that is some impressive action. Um, we'll talk later. Um. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a guest star with us tonight, right behind you. Yeah, I um, it's actually um, a copy of the Invision of Time and the Rani. Um, Fabulous. But it has a nice full... Um, excuse me, can I see that, that front bit again? You see that asteroid there? Yeah. Is that made of strange matter? <laughs> Matt. What monstrous experiment are you dabbling in now? Uh, hamster with a blunt pen knife. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing blunt, nothing at all. The blunt. Doctor Who podcast is the... <laughs> there's nothing blunt about this pen knife at the moment, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> it's um, a strange matter I'm in, involved in. So we're here for Time and the Rani episode two after a riveting episode one. Um, we laughed a lot. Um, and we laughed with it, not at it. I need to point that out because I, I think there's a, a, a subset of Doctor Who fans out there, the ones that are responsible for making this like the second worst Doctor Who story of all time in every poll, that think the first episode is the nadir of Doctor Who. I mean, what is wrong with those people? Well, I suspect they haven't watched most of the rest of Doctor Who because the, the first episode is... Just fun, isn't it? What's what yeah. was wrong with that? They, they don't like fun. They don't enjoy being fun. They don't enjoy liking yeah. things. Is the thing. It's, it's, it's an issue. I mean, the, the doctor didn't try and choke Mel to death, um, <laughs> so it's an instant, instantly better than the last regeneration story. And he didn't spend the whole thing asleep in a box, which makes it probably better than the regeneration story before that. So. And hang on, he didn't uh, spend the first episode behaving like a complete lunatic. Oh no, wait, yes, he did. So it's a bit like it's, so it's a bit like Robot, but Robot is also very fun. Yes. And he it didn't is. spend all of episode one in a bed in a hospital like Spiro from Space. No, that's true. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. After that first episode, we we really know what um, the seventh doctor is going to be like. You definitely, definitely wouldn't get um, the the sort of curse of Fenric um, feel um, for the seventh doctor from that episode. But I think McCoy makes a really he he does two things in that first episode. He does that immediately post-regenerative I've got a list of things I want to do and then he goes 
he goes bonkers and just plays with it. Well, and it allows him to push and find how he wants to how he wants to play it. I've got something to say about McCoy, Curtis Fenwick, and Tymon the Rani, but let's skip Ooh. into episode two and I'll say it over the action. Ooh. Okay. It's not like you to talk over the action. Oh, it's very like me, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, oh no, you need to count it in. You, you're in this oh, one. Yeah. So, five, four, three, two, one, play. There we go. So, I have a theory that Sylvester McCoy is uh, a very adept um, performer. Yeah, so he spent his whole yes. life performing. And when Doctor Who gives him a chance to perform, he's very relaxed. He's very comfortable. Think of like Great Show in the Galaxy when he's in the, yeah. in the ring. Think of um, whenever he gets to do tricks or, or to be funny or to play up to the audience. I think when he's asked to act, like seriously act, and Curtis Fenwick's a good example. The beginning, the beginning's only good and evil. I don't think that's in his wheelhouse, I and mean, he struggles a lot of the time. I think that I think there's a there's a sort of train of criticism that he can't do angry. Um, a lot of it boils down into that battlefield scene where he has to walk between. I can't remember who, like Anselin and Mordred or whoever it is. And he goes, there will be no battle here. And it's not... Um, you know, yeah. he has to give dramatic gravity to the line, Morgane, if they're dead. And he's just not capable of it. He has to stand in a quarry and say, don't move. I'm telling you to stay still. And he can't do it. Like I feel like I'm 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 kind of firing a gun at him, and yet in season twenty four he gets to do lots of tricks. The scene with the caretakers in Paradise Towers and the rule book, absolutely in his way. He's perfect in that scene. Give, give us your McCoy again. Do, do your McCoy. Which one? I, any just okay. Your, your McCoy impression. So, so my, my favourite one is um, your people were annihilated, your planet obliterated. You're too late, Kane, for your revenge. Time has flown by. Why? I hope Nick Briggs is listening because you know you, you you could be when the time sad time comes. Um, Big Finish will sign you up in an instant. F fingers crossed. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't even go there. Not crossed, please. I can't handle it. <laughs> um, a bit close to the knuckle did you see did you see the transition between two scenes there um so uh, icona pulled the thing out of the bubble and there was an explosion but the, the explosion was in the lab but the inference is that the bubbles exploded that's a clever transition there's, there's some thought in the direction and uh, uh, yeah, um, the, the structure of the the structure of this is actually very good. So the first episode, the first episode really is just about the Doctor and Mel meeting the Rani and Icona, um, and not a lot else really happens. The plot is very secondary. Um, 
Yeah, in terms of the master brain and the kidnapped geniuses and all the rest of You've it. Got uh, Kate Amara pretending to be Bonnie Langford. What more do you need? But oh. did, did you hear that exchange a second ago? Where he went, there's not a spark of decency in her. And she's like, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> the Doctor Who quarry has never looked oh, it's gorgeous. as good as in, in Time in the Rani. Yeah. E even Caves of Androzani, which is some great quarry sandpit work, doesn't I, look as good I as... I dare to suggest there's one in a later McCoy story that looks even better. But it's close. Oh, survival. I was going to say Great Show in the Galaxy, actually. Uh, yeah. But, but I think that in general, the sort of McCoy location, just the production values in the McCoy stuff, I think, are um, just a clear step up. And I think Time and the Rani, one thing that is great about it is the production values compared to the Trial of a Time Lord are a clear step up it 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 is it is just better made they've clearly invested more in the costumes and the sets and the special effects they've got some fancy computer graphics in there it just looks it looks like they're spending a bit more money on it um and to be fair i'm not a, a massive fan of the six doctors era but again i think that is a clearly better made the film the film work in season 22 the making of season 22 is a clear step up from the davison stuff so i think through the 80s regardless of whether you like the content of the episodes or not i think there is a clearly upwards trajectory in terms of the, when how you, good the stories look when you get to ghost light i think they've absolutely mastered the in-studio story it's so atmospheric yes. and they and then you get to survival and they've mastered the all on location story as well because the, yes. the scenes on the cheetah totally. planet are gorgeous so totally. it just it's so enticing because it's like well what would they have done in the 90s i think i think the only i think drag dragonfire is a bit disappointing it, it looks it looks a bit yeah plasticky compared to the rest of season 24. and i think the other one that's really disappointing is battlefield um some of the interior sets in like the the submarine spaceship like that winding staircase with a bit oh, of yeah, fairy lights yeah. wrapped around it is like really naff um, I, really I think weak. Battlefield though is the direction is really weak, isn't it? Like yeah. I think if they'd have had like Alan Waring working on that or Andrew Morgan, it, it might have had more visual impact. Um, which is such a shame because after season twenty-five, I think is is brilliant all the way through. I think all all four of those look really really good. I'm a huge fan of the Happiness Patrol. Love the Do you know what? The more I do this, the more people I talk to, the Happiness Patrol is ranked by pretty much everyone I talk to. That's brilliant. I, I absolutely. But I think I think those, those stories. I think the McCoy stuff nails how to do. What did JNT call them? Oddball stories. Yeah. And I think yeah. one innovation that JNT sort of really properly brings in is is oddball so you've got like warriors gay and kingdom and a lot to be fair a lot of season 20 just is a bit of a problem in a way but there's a lot of oddball stories um threaded through 
his producership, but it really hits a peak of quality, I think, in the McCoy stuff. And they, the oddball stuff is really, really good. So, Do you know what's great Paradise about Tower is um, really brilliant. the oddballs in McCoy's time is I feel like uh, they, they're generally pitched um, kind of a bit cartoony, but they're yeah. really fucking dark. And that's yeah. a really interesting mix. It's, 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 it's almost like that Rob Shearman style humor of being very funny and a bit sick. The cannibals, the cannibal old women in Paradise Towers. It's hilarious. Yes. And it's really scary at the same time. Well, they, they have a kind of um, aesthetic of um, like comic, like group. I'm not sure you're allowed to call them comic books or if that belittles them. Yeah, so the, the, the sort of proper comics of um, Alan Moore kind of thing, um, which I think Cartmel was really influenced and inspired by. So I think I think one of the things that he he said um, when he took on the job was he wanted to bring like the sort of Watchmen type aesthetic to the series, and you 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 didn't get that from from what he brings to the show there's a, a very that, that sort of boldness of ideas and really leaning into um like the cannibal old ladies that's that's probably something that the show would have dismissed as too camp in the past and, and carmel's like no we're going to do it and we're going to do it think of every story in season 24 yeah i can see because the the images are so bold i can see panels of a comic strip yeah. Uh, the the cleaning robot in the pool in Paradise Towers. Yeah. Um, I don't know the Shimron baby coming out of the egg. Kane's face melting. Like these would make fantastic panels in a comic book. Yes. No, you're absolutely right, and I I think they they have that even before you put a director on them, they have a visual impact to them that possibly quite. You know, do doesn't always exist in some of the earlier eras. And when it does, in something like Warrior's Gate, where the writer's got a really clear visual sense of what what the story might look like and, and has sort of worked with the director and the script editor and they've sort of thought through this white void and this creepy archway and these lion people that look at cocktail country. Well, well that, that's the exception i think in the past and it becomes almost like the norm in the, the mccoy stuff you talk about exceptions i find this scene the exception in this story right so generally this story is pitched as a, a mad panto about a giant brain and sylvester mccoy wanking and um this scene is pitched as a drama so so this yeah. woman has just lost her child and Wanda Venton plays it like she's in, I don't know, like some serious period drama, crying, understated. Like, it's it's a, almost like an aberration in this story. But it yeah. does have a moment of death. The actual child was somewhere in that quarry on this day. What, Cumberbatch? So Benedict Cumberbatch was actually oh. somewhere, somewhere nearby watching this, apparently. Look at Mel there. She actually looks like an action figure in that costume, doesn't she? She does. Those tight, tight buns. Do you, I think like, like if you watch this this scene, crack nuts with yeah. Them. This scene is saturated with color. It like hurts your eyes. There's so much color in it. 
that's the tears and the, the sort of scales glittering and the tears glittering. It's beautiful, a beautiful shot. Um, there's real emotion in that, and and you're right. And I think um, Sean's death is surprisingly threaded through this. And I think again, Tipper J not was given enough credit. I think McCoy has a lovely line. Um, I might. Um, I might have missed it actually, where he talks about that sad skeleton. Yeah, it was. And there's real, there's real sort of oh. um, emotion in that. And you can imagine that in Colin's mouth as well, being a really powerful moment. Like the, the doctor really cares about the people that he's trying to save and is affected by their deaths, which is not necessarily always the case in some of the Sick Doctor stories where. You know, he, he makes quips when people die horribly in an acid bath and things like that, like he's... James Bond. Roger Moore, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the sequence in a minute where Mel and the Doctor meet, I think is one of the most blissfully funny moments in, in all of Doctor Who. Where the dialogue is very funny, where it's like, me, washerwoman, me, where, under the carpet, he picks her up, and she, I mean, it, again, it's pure panto. But, right, it culminates in the most, what you're saying there about mo a moment of, like, depth. He grabs her hands, looks straight at her in the sweetest way and goes, Mel, and it's so lovely. Oh, the tetraps are so good. Why haven't we got a tetrap action figure? Oh. Actually, no, there is a tetrap vehicle action Yeah, I had one. I had one of those. I didn't have many, so when I played Doctor Who in the Garden with my Sylvester McCoy and Bonnie Langford, the Tetras were the villains every week. Mm. They should oh. have brought them back. They're a great design. I'd love, I'd love, I'd love the Tetraps to come back. Matt, let me feel your pulse. Pulses, I should say. Two of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I just want to hold your hand. Can I hold your hands? Thank you. You got soft skin. Honestly. <laughs> I, I love I love Mel um, wrestling with the doctor. Yeah. Oh this and is then... look. And and, and Bonnie Langford's so such a dancer. She's got such poise when she's being picked up, you know? And, and when, and when, when she tries to pull her And it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, almost as funny as the scene in um, oh, Stevens when my <laughs> sister jumps out oh, yeah. the costume and the wig. Wig? The wig. <laughs> oh, don't you just love Urak? I love Urak. Yes, oh, Mistress Rania. Is he supposed to be Uriah Heep? That's the idea, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I've had enough but of this drivel. You can't drop a line like that. You've got to be very careful of what you're putting on the screen. Oh, man, it's so funny. Why wouldn't someone enjoy this? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I, I suppose it, if I try to get into the mindset of someone who doesn't enjoy it, what, what's... Well, Bonnie Langford 
I think she's quite she's becoming more popular now and I think oh, there's a bit of a renaissance for Mel but she for a long time she was probably even more unpopular than Adric because um, she she does play it very um, sort of very middle class drama school but it works for the character as you said earlier um, why else might you not like it because it, it's it's funny and silly um can i say i about think Mel? for a long time doctor who any doctor who that was funny and silly was really looked down on so season 17 funny and yeah. silly people didn't like it for a very long time um i think there's a there's a cancellation crisis fear as well that if the show's mm. not taking itself seriously it's going to yeah. be axed you know and weirdly enough it's when the show started taking itself seriously was when it was axed you know yeah um, see season 26 is oh and i love the introspection of the seventh doctor he has doubt and he's not he's not certain and arrogant um he's doubtful and reflective and it's, a, it's a, such a beautiful character compared to he, he's not some he's not a caricature of what people in the late 80s thought Doctor Who was, which is just like some wacky, over-the-top, bombastic, cod Shakespearean actor hamming it up. He's, there's real subtlety and depth um, to the performance. It's beautifully the done. cafe scene in Remembrance of the Daleks, or the bit in Ghostlight where, where Ace confronts him and he has the whole kind of bird toast bus station yeah. speech. But, and, and, but it's here as well, actually. It's not just McCoy performing it. It is in Pip and Jane's scripts, and I think all of the all of the great stuff that happens with the Seventh Doctor later. I'm not suggesting that Pip and Jane invented it and influenced the whole of Carmel's vision. You show, should suggest that they didn't write it in a way that was completely out of out of kilter with the way that Carmel developed the character either. They, they have a real strong sense of how to write a doctor that's sensitive and um, and cares about things. In And I think that's how they wrote The Sixth Doctor as well. But I think that's why Colin still says that they're the only writers who really sort of got what he wanted to do with the role, because he didn't want to play yeah. The Sixth Doctor in the way that I've just described as this ridiculous, over-the-top, bombastic, hammy actor he wanted to bring depth and subtlety to it and okay. quite a lot of the time for whatever reason he wasn't allowed to and he was stuck in that stupid costume as well in the mark of the rani he gets that line doesn't he um these are human beings rani you know living creatures that have done you no harm you know yeah. there, there's a and there's a bit where the two women are talking about their husbands that have gone missing and he's looking at them like really empathizing with them you know Oh, what happened to Nenica? And this is my one criticism of this story. The Rani's TARDIS in The Mark of the Rani was so stylish. I don't know what that CSO yeah. backdrop is, but it ain't. it's not a patch, is it? Nah, it's... Um... Oh, I need you to pay perfect attention in a minute, okay, to when um, the Doctor distracts the Rani and then ties her up on the table, because between episodes two and three, I would like you to do that to me, all right? Yeah, got it. Lovely. 
Okay. Oh, I want to talk to you very quickly about the structure of this story. Okay. Yes. Because I think it is much better structured than people say. It introduces the scientists at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Then um, you've got her using the doctor to create the machine. She needs his knowledge to, to finish off this machine. But she also needs his knowledge of time travel. She needs a time traveler in the mix in order for this thing to become a time manipulator. Um, she's on a planet which is in the right location for the, for her great scheme to take place. And the planet is actually part of the time manipulator. Um, we, we discover in stages different parts of this mad plot. Um, culminating in, I think it's at the end of episode three, where we finally see the brain and we realise how it all comes together. Yeah. I think it's really well done. I, I think you're right. And I think Cartmel agreed with you. I was I was sort of preparing by by doing a little bit of catching up on um, In Envision and um, a couple of the guidebooks. And one of the interesting things is that Cartmel doesn't just slate Pip and Jane. He... I think he questions how great their characterization is and, and finds some of the characterization a bit broad. But I think he does say that they were really good at structuring scripts. And I think Time and Lorani, in terms of structure, is fundamentally sound. And partly that's why he didn't have to do a lot of work on it. It was, you know, it, it, it didn't require like a top to bottom rewrite to go in front of the uh, cameras. And that's why. JNT asked Pip and Jane to write it. He knew that they could write something that would be pretty much ready to go. Well, um, the thing is, think of how many... He, when he was like lumbered with season 24, having thought that he was leaving with Colin, um, he didn't have a script editor, he didn't have any scripts ready to go, he didn't have a lead actor. So he, tur he turned to them because he knew that they could create something that was going to be workable. Think of how many Doctor Who stories culminate in a disappointing episode four or final episode, yeah? I would suggest that episode four of Time and the Rani uh, is a beautiful combination of everything you've seen before. All those elements come together and it's it's uh, it ups the stakes in a massive way because the entire, you know, universal, I don't know, history is at stake. Yeah. And then... I know I'm jumping the gun a bit. And then the Doctor uses the very thing that she used to enslave these people to bring his to bring her plan down. It, it kind of sings as a plot. It does, it, and it, it sort of has to, right? And I think that's one of the that's one of the benefits of McCoy getting Collins a story that was invented to write the Sixth Doctor out as his first story in the the story has to, by its nature, build up to a big, a big threat. Um, so it has to have that momentum and that culmination. And it has to give him that big hero moment at the end where he triumphantly foil, foils the plan. Oh, I love this cave. I, I just... This, is, this is the cliffhanger that I it? really, really remembered. So, and um, you know what? I can only imagine, have you ever been into a, like, a bat enclosure in a zoo? Where they're, they're I've been into a dark be. room. I think you've been into many dark rooms, Matt, honestly. Um, probably in about an hour's time. Um, 
but they they absolutely stink and they're really like oh it's a really oppressive atmosphere and i think they capture that really well here oh yeah and and just surround it and there's loads of them it's not like just one it's like oh i was in a in a sauna once and surrounded by a load of hairy men like this and i'll tell you what i did not resist like sylvester mccoy no <laughs> 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 you're lapping up the amsalt oh guzzling it down um <laughs> um that's another strong cliffhanger i think oh that that cliffhanger um i mentioned it when we were talking earlier that that's the one that really stuck in my mind um as a kid because i think that's really creepy for a kid or for this kid it was really creepy it's like the doctor in danger scary monster it's got monsters they're scary it's dark it's um it's creepy it's brilliant like in comparison um, to um castro valva where essentially it's like evil architecture this is riveting stuff for kids oh god yeah uh, and you know and the, tw the twin dilemma where it's well you know that's a giant slug have you never been menaced by a giant slug? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm warning you, you're about to be. 